A brief note here before we get started. We let an error get by us in our last episode, the one about the mercenary. We mentioned that a group of mercenaries from the German state of Hesse fought in the American Revolutionary War. And that's true. But then we incorrectly stated that they fought for the revolutionaries instead of against them. It was a typographical error, and we apologize. Thank you to the literally dozens of you who have, and continue to, point this out to us. Please stop. We're really sorry. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Willow Bark We here at the Word of the Week are no strangers to medical treatment. Partly because we, as we have mentioned before, are what might be politely referred to as old. But also, partly because we are subject to a number of chronic ailments and conditions that often bring us into contact with medical professionals on a semi-regular basis. We had occasion to reflect on this fact last week when we, and when we say we, we mean one of us, when we found ourselves in a hospital emergency room. Because we had a headache. Yes, you heard that right. It's a complicated story and not worth telling now. The reason we bring it up is because, ultimately, we found ourselves surprised by how similar modern medical treatment is to the medical treatments of the ancient, medieval, and fantasy worlds when the emergency room doctor handed us the treatment for our emergency, two Tylenol caplets. What does that have to do with ancient medical treatment? Just that Tylenol is a sort of cousin medicine to a medical treatment that has been in existence for two and a half millennia and may be one of the oldest medicines still in common use. We're talking about aspirin, or to give it its proper name, acetosalicylic acid, which originally, with only a few slight adjustments, came from willow bark. First of all, if you're not aware, aspirin is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, or NSAID. Among its uses are the reduction of pain, fever, and swelling. More specifically, it's useful for reducing inflammation, hence anti-inflammatory. Now, inflammation is not the actual bursting into flame of various body parts, as you might expect. Inflammation is called inflammation because it is associated with redness and warmth, and pain and discomfort. People associate the cause of inflammation with injury, damage, or illness, but if you want to get really technical, injury and infection do not cause inflammation. Your body causes inflammation. When your body suffers some sort of harm via damage or infection or whatever, it tends to get defensive. Your body wants to prevent the spread of infection, purge it, and or repair whatever damage has occurred. There is a very complicated defensive force in play called the immune system that jumps in whenever something goes wrong. We've spoken about it before. Say you step on a carelessly discarded D4, trip, fall, and smash your face on your gaming table. That blow to your face causes damage to your body tissues, and you take one point of piercing damage to your foot. Blood vessels rupture, tissues might get stretched or torn, and bones might even get broken. As soon as something like that happens, specific cells in your body basically panic. Those cells, the white blood cells, begin releasing a whole bunch of chemicals that are like blowing the horn of Gondor. All the troops are alerted and rush to the location, 
and they cause your body to do all sorts of things related to fighting infections and fixing damage. The first thing they do is increase the blood flow to the affected area because blood is basically your body's troop transport and supply line all rolled into one. That increased blood flow makes the area warmer, redder, and swollen, otherwise known as inflamed. Those same chemicals released by your white blood cells also pool in your body's tissues, which then swell up and cause a sense of pressure or discomfort. Meanwhile, a collection of nerves called pain receptors are also triggered and a message is rapidly passed back to central command, your brain, that something is wrong. Helpfully, these chemicals greatly amplify the strength of those pain receptors just to be sure the message isn't missed. Basically, those chemicals not only switch on your pain system, they also crank it up to 11. Now, you may have heard that pain is entirely in your head. This is entirely correct. The signals from your nerves are just little electrochemical pulses screaming along your nervous system. But when they get into your brain, your brain translates them into something that you specifically can't ignore. Pain. In fact, it's a pretty bad idea to just ignore actual pain until it goes away. The reason being, pain is your body telling your brain to figure out what the heck is causing the damage and do something about it. Also, your body would very much appreciate it if you were very careful with whatever part of it is broken until it is fully healed. Thank you very much. That's why the pain continues, even after you've dislodged the D4 from your foot and taken that penalty to your movement speed. Now, that's all well and good. Most of us understand how injury, inflammation, pain, and so forth work in a broad sense, if not specifically well enough to know not to leave D4s laying around on the floor, at least. What few of us understand beyond a rudimentary take one to make things stop hurting way is what aspirin actually does once it gets into your bloodstream. What it does is suppress all those chemicals, called prostaglandins, that are causing that stuff to happen in the first place, thereby reducing the inflammation and quieting the pain response. As a bonus action, aspirin can also reduce blood clots, leading to increased blood flow but more on that later. People often wonder how aspirin knows where to go to stop the pain. The answer is, of course, it doesn't. Aspirin dissolves into your bloodstream and suppresses the prostaglandins wherever it finds them. The problem is, while that is extremely useful most of the time, there are times when it is very dangerous indeed. On the useful side of things, aspirin can deal with pain that doesn't seem to have a localized source. For example, stress-induced pain often manifests as a headache, and no one is punching you in the head, though it might feel that way. Menstrual cramps often fall into this category as well. Aspirin, because it reduces the level of prostaglandins everywhere in your body, is effective at reducing these sorts of pains. However, one of the problems with aspirin that occasionally results in it being extremely dangerous is that it must first pass through your stomach and your stomach is lined with naturally occurring prostaglandins, which aspirin can damage, leading to bleeding. And speaking of bleeding, because it does dissolve blood clots and essentially lubricates your bloodstream so that blood flows better, aspirin can make certain kinds of bleeding and clotting problems worse. But because of this effect, doctors often recommend very small amounts of aspirin to their blood pressure and heart patients in the form of a daily children's aspirin. 
What does this have to do with ancient medicine? Remember that aspirin is actually a chemical called acetosalicylic acid? Now, we don't want to get too deep into biochemistry. We learned a long time ago in our heady college days, the first attempt, that biochemistry was the subject in biology that separated the men from the boys. And we barely qualified as a fetus. But acetosalicylic acid is actually made from something else. Something called salicylic acid. And until 1897, salicylic acid was the medicine of choice for fevers, inflammation, and pain. But then, along came Felix Hoffman and his dad. And, most importantly, his dad's ulcers. Felix Hoffman was a German chemist working for a chemical company known as Friedrich Bayer & Company. Nowadays, they are known as a pharmaceutical company. They make Bayer aspirin, which you may have heard of. When they were founded in 1825, though, they mostly made dye. It was thanks to Hoffman's dad's ulcers that Bayer really got into the drug-making game. See, Hoffman's father had arthritis, bad arthritis. To dull the pain, he took copious amounts of salicylic acid, so much so that Felix's dad developed bleeding ulcers in his stomach and intestine. Hoffman found himself reasoning that salicylic acid, being an acid, was probably the cause of the damage. So he started trying to combine the salicylic acid with something else to reduce the acidity. Ultimately, he succeeded by combining the acid with a hydrocarbon molecule known as the acetyl group. And voila, acetosalicylic acid. But 1897 hardly qualifies as ancient, unless you're one of those 20-somethings who believe everyone over 40 is old. Now, we promised we would trace this medicine back to the ancient world, didn't we? Well, how about 400 BCE? Is that ancient enough for you? Because salicylic acid goes back to a person often referred to as the father of Western medicine. A man whose name is synonymous with the practice of medicine. Literally. We're talking about Hippocrates. Hippocrates II. Hippocrates of Kos. Hippocrates is still a reasonably well-known name these days. His most famous work is a treatise on medical ethics that begins with the famous principle, first, do no harm. That ethical statement became the basis for many oaths taken by physicians over many centuries and provides the core for the modern Hippocratic Oath that has been accepted as the official statement on medical ethics by the World Medical Association since 1948. But, the truth is, Hippocrates probably didn't write the Hippocratic Oath. And the treatise he didn't write didn't technically contain the line, first, do no harm. Not even in Greek or Latin. In fact, of the over 60 medical writings that have survived to this day that have been attributed to Hippocrates, it appears that the majority were not actually written by Hippocrates. And that misconception is thanks to an ancient Egyptian museum and dates back to around 250 BCE. Hippocrates was renowned in his time as pretty much the best physician and teacher around. Around, in this case, refers to classical ancient Greece. He lived between 460 BCE and 375 BCE and was a contemporary of Plato, who wrote about him in glowing terms, even comparing him to famous sculptors and artists of the time. 
He traveled widely throughout Greece and Asia Minor, teaching wherever he could, and was extremely influential when it came to the practice of medicine. But after his death, his reputation got a bit exaggerated. A century after Hippocrates died, the Museum of Alexandria in Egypt was collecting great literary works for its library as a tribute to the great scholars of classical Greece. When they assembled a collection of works about the practice of medicine during the period, they called them Corpus Hippocraticum, or the body of Hippocrates. It's in a body of work, not a corpse. While a few of these documents may have been original to Hippocrates, many of them were actually critiques or commentaries on Hippocrates' work, but it all got lumped together. And thus, although we're pretty sure Hippocrates was a really great doctor and ethicist, we're not sure how much of his doctoring and ethics he actually deserves the credit for. Among the various writings attributed to Hippocrates was an encyclopedia of herbal and plant-based remedies for various ailments and conditions. And among those was willow bark. Hippocrates extolled the virtues of willow bark as a reducer of pain and fever and swelling. And because it was easy enough to come by, it became a very common remedy in Europe. In fact, it remained one of the most common and ubiquitous herbal remedies for, well, nearly forever. It wasn't until the 1700s when the Reverend Edmund Stone, a scientist, did the chemical detective work to isolate the thing in willow bark that actually had the medicinal effect. And that was, of course, salicin. And that led to the production of salicylic acid. And that led to Hoffman's father's ulcers. And that led to aspirin. Willow bark was just one of a huge number of herbal remedies that have been known since ancient times to have an efficacious use on humans. Egypt and China are especially renowned for their long, long history of herbal remedies. Egyptian herbal medicine favored simple herbs and plants that were often cultivated in small gardens and were often added to food or drink. In fact, there's a lot of overlap between Egyptian herbal remedies and modern spices, spreads, and flavor enhancers. The Egyptians, for example, used honey and garlic, both of which have antiseptic properties, and onion, which strengthens the heart and reduces cholesterol, as well as castor oil, which can be used topically to reduce skin and eye irritation and dryness. And Egypt shared its knowledge with Greece and throughout the ancient world. By contrast, China favored wildflowers and herbs, and they cataloged thousands of such remedies combined into very complicated formulas. Thus, Chinese physicians often learned complex recipes and procedures for making their medicines, but they were quite secretive about it. The view in the West of Chinese herbal remedies as ancient secrets unknown by the rest of the world until modern times isn't just a stereotype pushed by late-night television commercials. It's actually quite accurate. China closely guarded its medical secrets and kept them within their own borders for many centuries. But that still doesn't mean you should pay attention to late-night commercials. We tend to have this view of ancient medieval medicine as primitive and superstitious and backwards. We picture barbers putting leeches on a patient because they've been diagnosed with a sanguineous nature. Translation, you have too much blood in you, and we need to let a blood-sucking parasite drink some of it out. We think about Mesoamerican and ancient European physicians using trepanning on the mentally ill. That is, they drilled holes in the head and skull to let out evil spirits. And certainly those sorts of things did happen, 
Yes, ancient medicine had some very backward ideas. But then again, modern medicine has also been guilty of some very backward ideas. Like frontal lobotomies. Science is an evolution. It's never a finished process. That said, medicines like willow bark and thousands of others show that the ancients were very good at experimentation and observational science when it came to medical practices. And they were quite advanced in some ways. For example, the oldest known medical writing on how to treat a wound comes from an Egyptian clay tablet from 2200 BCE. It describes three practices, washing wounds, making wound dressings, and then dressing the wound. Now these dressings were essentially poultices, an absorbent mass of material that is bound over a wound. A poultice serves a number of purposes. First, it traps the fluids that come out of the wound, including blood and pus, and draws them away. Second, it protects the wound from exposure to infection while the skin is healing. These poultices were made of a mix of clay and spongy plant matter that included a variety of herbs that were thought to aid wound healing. Most importantly of all, they also included a layer of plant oil. Why is that important? Well, oil serves two purposes. First, it prevents the dressing from sticking to the wound itself. Second, oil provides a very poor medium for bacterial growth, so it prevents infection. Of course, these people had no idea about infection being caused by bacteria and foreign pathogens, but they did recognize the importance of keeping a wound clean. And they did notice that certain substances kept the wound cleaner than others. The ancient Egyptians continued to advance their science of wound care. Wound dressings became more complicated, as did their methods for cleaning wounds. They would use honey and garlic to clean the wound, and they began making dressings out of lint mixed with honey and grease derived from animal fat. The grease replaced the oil as a non-adhesive protection from infection. The lint made from vegetable fibers replaced the clay and mud base of the bandage. The Egyptians also painted wounds with green paint. They believed the color green was associated with life and healing. And it actually was. Because their green paints contained copper. And copper is toxic to many types of bacteria which might otherwise cause infection. The ancient Sumerians were no slouches either. They pounded together fir turpentine and pine turpentine, which are gummy oils that come from animal hides and pine trees respectively. Then they added daisy, milled flour from a plant called ininu, and milk. They would mix all of that together in a copper pan, and then add beer. And that's what they spread over the wound. Sumerians, famous for, among other things, having 19 different and distinct varieties of beer, used beer for nearly everything. The point is, although we draw a lot of distinction between modern and ancient medicine, things we think of as distinctly modern like aspirin and band-aids are actually thousands of years old. And even some of the treatments we think of as being backwards and ignorant are actually turning out to have some value in the modern era. Like bloodletting. And even leeching. You heard us. In 2012, a study appeared in BMC Medical, one of 250 peer-reviewed professional journals published by the UK-based research organization Biomed Central, extolling the virtues of bloodletting. The study determined that a condition known as metabolic syndrome, or METS, could be mitigated or treated by regular bloodletting. But that's not all. Starting in 2001, a number of scientific groups started looking at the use of leeches to treat certain types of inflammatory conditions, including arthritis, 
as well as for speeding healing of wounds following surgery. Why? Well, it has to do with a particular property of leech saliva. A refresher. A leech is a class of predatory annelid, a segmented worm. Most are aquatic and live in fresh water, but there are also land-dwelling and sea-dwelling leech species. Now, most leeches feed on worms, snails, insects, or crustaceans. But those aren't the sorts of leeches most people think about when they hear leech. When people think leeches, they think of trudging through dank and brackish swamps and coming out the other side with a dozen blackish, slimy blobs attached to their foolishly bare legs, draining the very lifeblood from them. A hemophagic leech, one that feeds on blood, attaches itself to a host via a sucker-like mouth. Then it drains blood from its prey until it becomes engorged. Once engorged, it releases itself to digest the tasty crimson meal in peace. What makes them medically interesting, though, and medically useful, is that the leech has two major obstacles when it comes to obtaining a tasty meal. First of all, when it attaches itself to a host, the host is prone to notice that a blobby worm is now connected to their body via a suction cup and drinking their blood. And so, the leech's saliva produces an anesthetic that dulls the host's sense of touch and pain. Thus, the leech can go unnoticed long enough to feed. Second of all, blood clots. As we discussed in our episode about chirurgeons, once blood gets outside your circulatory system, it automatically begins to harden in order to seal whatever wound it is leaking out of in the first place. To prevent the host's circulatory system from sealing itself up, the leech's saliva also contains a substance that prevents the blood from clotting. And both these properties have serious applications in today's medicine. Because just like willow bark, salicylic acid, and aspirin, leech saliva dulls pain, reduces inflammation, and thins the blood. However, rather than hopping into a fetid swamp with no pants on whenever you have a headache, we highly recommend you take two aspirin and call us in the morning instead. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.